Now for, and, I, and again, I'm going to try to respect the issue and uh, keep it for all of our kids that are present, keep it very uh, PG-13. But I want to review something just for a minute and show you what Jesus is doing. And it's kind of masterful. Again, he is our master, so it's masterful. Um, let's review the Ten Commandments just, just for a minute. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, wife, or possessions. This is not a literal translation, but uh, a, a quick snapshot. Now, last week, we looked at thou shalt not kill. Right here. And that Jesus equated holding grudges with murder. There's more than one way to kill somebody. You can kill them with your tongue. James says the tongue is the smallest member of the body, yet it can set a, fire, a forest fire. But now Jesus drops down and he, he addresses thou shalt not commit adultery and ultimately thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house wife or possessions so he's combining these two and the first thing that we learn from jesus is that we shall remain sexually pure i'm sorry that i looked different on the powerpoint when i did it in my office but uh, that is remain and the fill in the blank is sexually pure and he starts with the commandment you have heard it said when jesus says you have heard it said throughout the sermon on the mount he is referring to the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. You have heard it said, Moses, you could just say it this way. Moses wrote this, and you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. Moikuo. That word mokoyo uh, refers to having relations with someone other than your spouse. This was really on display when I was in the army there were rampant divorces in the army when soldiers would go off soldiers would mess around the wives it was it was really bad I I don't know what the divorce rate was in the army but it had to be over the the 60 percent mark eventually now the this is not referred to single people this is to married people you get into a different commandment uh, sexual immorality god calls it an abomination uh, to have relations outside of the covenant marriage um, the scribes and pharisees would have said amen to this the scribes and pharisees they said he's right on this you shall not commit adultery because that was in the ten commandments and also throughout the uh, levitical laws there was a lot of laws back then so they would have been on board with this. The problem is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or the Pharisees and the scribes, excuse me, only limited it to the physical activity. In, in other words, as long as you didn't commit the act, you were good to go, you were safe. John Stott is correct when he writes, in their view, they and their pupils kept the seventh commandment if they avoided the act of adultery itself. 
they thus gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. So in other words, you could think it and that wouldn't count as the actual act. And so they would be fine with that. And Jesus will get ready to address that in a minute. The big question is, what was the penalty for adultery, talking about in the Old Testament? Well, the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was this, Leviticus 20.10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, this is for both, shall be put to death. As I look at our culture today, there's, we're nowhere near. We're, we are absolutely nowhere near. Um, even within Christian homes, and I've got some statistics that I'm going to show later in this sermon. But this was the penalty. So as long as you didn't physically do the act, you were okay. And so the Pharisees in the, in the uh the scribes would have would have probably been amening. Of course, throughout this series, you've seen amen and oops, because Jesus does something to the commandment. Bear in mind, the issue here is Jesus is looking at the physical world and the spiritual world. The Pharisees were only looking at the direct command. So in other words, Jeremiah, when he says, I will take the law and put it in their heart, this is what the law looks like when it goes into the heart. Jesus is taking the commandment and transforming it and putting it into the hearts of his people. It's not just enough not to do the command or, or, or go against the command. That's, that's not enough. Jesus says there is something more. And then Jesus talks about the heart. Notice, last week, if you, if you murder somebody, that's, that's wrong. But Jesus says, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, there's other ways to murder people. And by the way, if your heart's not right, I'm not going to accept your worship. It's not just the physical realm that Jesus is dealing with. Jesus is radically changing uh, not changing, but radically reshaping the Ten Commandments to go inward. Fulfillment of Jeremiah, where I will write my laws on their hearts. And then Jesus says, whenever he gets ready to say something significant, as you read through this uh, rather lengthy discourse, took me 17 minutes or so to read through the entire Sermon on the Mount. And there might have been some stoppage in the Sermon on the Mount for people to ooh and ah. But notice what Jesus says. But I say to you, this is Jesus now. Jesus is saying, you have heard it said this. But I say to you. Now Jesus is going to drill down now on this commandment of adultery. Notice what he writes. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying it's not just the physical. It's an internal issue. It goes inward. Lustful intent. Epithumau. Epithumau. Which means a strong... Listen, this is interesting. This is interesting because it cuts right into the 10th commandment. Listen to this. A strong desire 
to want what does not belong to you. What is that? That's coveting. So at the root sin of adultery is the idea of coveting. Taking your neighbor's, so your neighbor's wife, maybe possessions. It, the issue here is not so much the physical act, though that is guilt, that's wrong too. But Jesus said it's much different. It's, it goes much deeper than that. You can't just look at that commandment and say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm, I'm safe. No, he goes to the heart of the issue. Ian Campbell in his commentary wrote this. Again, there were those who prided themselves on the fact that they have never committed adultery simply because they had never carried through the physical act of sleeping with another woman. By the way, the woman would be guilty as well, according to the commandment. But Jesus says that our righteousness has to go deeper than this. Adultery does not begin in the bed, it begins in the heart. And herein lies the issue, the heart, cardia. We've looked at this word many times in my ministry. It means the inner self. This, this is actually cardia, the inner self, the psychological life of the person. Let me, let me say this. This is not, we're not, Jesus is not saying a casual glance. You see somebody that's attractive, you will note that they're attractive. When Audrey and I were dating, when bumped into her, I go, wow, she's nice looking. I don't know if she said the same thing about me, but, <laughs> but I'm not talking about a casual glance. We're, we're not talking about that. What Jesus is talking about is toying with the idea. Toying with the idea of being unfaithful, playing with it in your mind, visualizing these types of things. This is what Jesus is talking about. And so he says here, the heart is the most important spot. It is the most, this is what Jesus is concerned about. There were scribes and Pharisees and, and those in the religious sect that, that you know, well, we, we've honored this. We've totally honored this. Well, Jesus says apparently not. Because you're focusing primarily on the external. I'm focusing on the internal and the eternal. So, the big question is, we need to be really careful. We need to be careful about what we look at. We need to be careful about the ideas and the thoughts that come into our minds. The internet is wonderful, but the internet is also a bad place. It can be a bad place. Many of you know that already. So the question is, how do we protect ourselves? Well, we can protect ourselves, 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. A born-again believer is in a fight every day to distance him or herself from the past. That is, the past is there, it creeps up, and the Christian has to go, wait a minute, I'm going to renounce that. I am not going to go back, and I am not going to do this. I am not going to toy with these ideas. I'm not going to play with them. I am going to remain obedient and faithful to Christ. So take this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Let go of that. Ask God to help you in your Christian life to let go of the past. And every one of us in this room and those watching by Facebook, 
and maybe watching on our stream on online. Every one of us has a past before Christ, right? If you looked at my life before Christ, you'd go, wow, that was crazy. I was 19 years old in the army running wild. I didn't know Christ. When I came to Christ, then the struggle began to happen because I realized this is not what I should be doing. And yeah, I got saved in October. I didn't really get into church till April, and it wasn't until a friend put a track by my bed. But when I got saved and I would go back out to the bars, I knew something wasn't quite right. I don't mind sharing that with you. That was a lifetime ago now. Something wasn't right. And then I got into a church, met Audrey, got married, started growing in my faith. So, yeah, we all have a past. Let me say this. That past is under the blood of Christ. That past has been paid for. Therefore, as believers, as obedient children, we spend our days renouncing that. It's, it's not like, okay, well, today I'm going to renounce it. And then forget about it and go about your Christian walk. No, the Christian battle is day by day, right? Today's not the same as yesterday, and today's not the same as tomorrow. We'll have new encounters, new struggles. Another scripture that you may want to write down is this. Now flee youthful lust. Mostly happens to younger people. Hormones raging. But now flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. That is a right standing with God. That's what we do as believers. And again, this is Paul writing to Timothy. Faith, pistes, that is faith in Christ. Continue to focus on that. Love, agape, a self-sacrificing love. Not a selfish love. You see the difference. And peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's the issue. That's the issue that Jesus is driving here. Is that the, the, the physical act starts with an inward desire. Same as murder. There's the physical act, but what brought that physical act was anger. And Jesus said, you must deal with that anger, not harbor grudges. You see what, you, you see what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, okay, here's, here's the command, but here's where it starts. And at this point, nobody was good enough to get into the kingdom of God, not even the scribes and the Pharisees. For your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And now Jesus is showing what that looks like practically in the life of those that are listening. Another one you could look at. This is a good one too. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The, Paul writes masterfully in Romans. He writes that, the, that the, the, the flesh is set against the Spirit. And those two clash every day. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You're saved. I'm not going to say that you're not. When you struggle with stuff, that is proof that you are in a war with the flesh. The flesh is the sarks, the Greek word sarks, which means this body, everything that's attached with this body. Therefore, have your mind renewed daily. 
that you do not conform to the ways of the world, but to the ways of God. The sarks did not get saved. That's why when we die, we leave our bodies and eventually we'll be back together again with our bodies. It'll be made new in a twinkling of an eye. But here and now, I bet you everybody in this room struggles every day with something. And those that are, I don't want to exclude you guys on Facebook. You guys struggle, gals struggle with stuff too. I realize that. So this is not a one and done. It is one and done in the sense that Jesus Christ died for your sins, paid for them in full. That means past, present, and future sins are covered. But the issue is, now I want to live with him, not to keep my salvation, but because of my salvation. So, Walk by the Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Read the Word of God and say, you know what, Satan? I am not going to allow you to have these thoughts enter my mind. And it's not a one and done. You have to work at this. It's something that you have to do every day. And the big question is, so if you did sin in the heart, can Jesus forgive you? Absolutely. You do realize that, right? None of us are perfect. There was only one that was perfect, and we nailed him to the cross. So you can definitely sin in this area and still be forgiven. That's New Testament. Now, the next one, and I'm so sorry about that remains, that, that should have been, I should have put it in black letters. Um, moral self-denial, this thing has gone nuts here. Listen to what Jesus says. If your right eye, this is verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one member than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. I know most of us hear that and we go, wow, Jesus is teaching mutilation. For it is better that you lose one member then your whole body be thrown into hell. Let's, let's kind of do a quick, a quick review here of the methods of Jesus' teachings. First of all, Jesus often spoke in Proverbs. He often said stuff, they were proverbial, if you will. He also used riddles. Tell me which one is did the will of God. There's a riddle. And by the way, the stories of Jesus were simply stories to illustrate a spiritual point. Jesus spoke in paradoxes. Jesus spoke in parables. These are random stories used to connect with the audience or the hearer to draw out a spiritual point. And then we talk about hyperbole. We've already seen a couple here, but Jesus' ministry was also focused on hyperbole. Hyperbole is not to be taken literally. Jesus was not teaching mutilation. So knowing, knowing the thought of Jesus' teaching, he's driving at something here. Let me give you some examples of hyperbole. Luke 14, 26, if anyone does not hate, this is Jesus, if anyone does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, or sisters, 
he cannot be my disciple. Now, if we were to take that literally, if we were to take that literally, Jesus has violated the commandment to honor your father and mother. That's what the Ten Commandments teach. Jesus was not saying that you have to that you have to hate your mother and father. But he's saying, I take precedence over all families. I take precedence. I am first. Your relationship to me should make it look like you hate your mother and father. You don't actually hate your mother and father because you're supposed to honor your mother and father. So and this, is, this is the stuff that got Jesus in trouble with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's teaching this. You can't do that. What about Matthew, there it is, Matthew 19.24. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus was not saying, well, rich men can't get in at all. He's just saying it's very difficult. Why is it difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? I'll tell you why. Because they have no need for Jesus. And Jesus was warning that your possessions may cause you not to accept me and trust in me. Along that same lines. What about Luke 14.33? Jesus says this. So therefore, whoever does not renounce everything that he owns, he cannot be my disciple. Do you have to renounce everything that you own? Jesus was using hyperbole to make a point. That your possessions cannot control your commitment to Christ. He is, takes priority over those. It's very interesting. I, I love church history. I love ancient church history. This man right here, or, uh, Origen of Alexandria. He was one of the original church fathers. Who took this Literally. This very text that we're looking at. He took it literally. Um, he practiced extreme asceticism. That is cutting the body, beating the body to gain favor with God. We don't gain favor with God that way. The way that we gain favor with God is we trust in Christ and we live for him. Secondly, he renounced all of his possessions. I guess it's not bad if you want to give your possessions away. That's not bad, but that's not really the issue. The issue is here that Jesus is talking about. This is the issue. A third thing that he did was he refused to eat or sleep for long periods. He thought, if I don't eat and I don't sleep, it'll show God how serious I am with him. And yet, God designed the body to require at least six hours of sleep a night. In fact, you can't function properly without sleep now it does talk about fasting the Bible talks about fasting we're not talking about that I think that's another just throwing this in here as a as an extra for you Jesus fasted for 40 days I'm not sure I don't think I could fast for three days <laughs> I mean you got to be tough to do that but Jesus was doing the will of the Father Origen literally translated these verses literal so horrifying 
he actually became a eunuch. This is one of the church fathers. This is, uh, you can see, first century church father. And this is what the church, they looked at this and they go, well, okay, we've got to do this. Jesus said it. But they didn't have the knowledge that we have today. We didn't have, they didn't have all the language stuff. So bad was this practice during this time period that the Council of Nicaea banned the practice. They said, we, you cannot beat yourself to gain favor with God. You cannot do this stuff. Jesus does not call us to mangle ourselves. And then, you, you know, you get people that, that look at these and they go, wow, why would Jesus say that? Stuart Weber is all over this. I was too, but I, I get people who agree with me. <laughs> um, Stuart Weber said this, the exhortation to gouge out one's eye or cut off one's hand is hyperbole. Absolutely no doubt. Intended to communicate the point. Do whatever it takes to change your heart attitude. If you struggle with images on the internet, get rid of your computer. Get rid of your phone. That's what he's saying. Some people have missed the figure of speech here. It is hyperbole. Jesus is stretching something to make a spiritual point. When, when you read here, it's better that his whole body than his whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is stretching in other words, this is what my disciples look like. It's people who remain sexually pure, who deny themselves, who are concerned about the heart, not just the physical command. Yes. Stuff happens. If you, if you hit somebody with your fist, if you hit somebody with your fist, that didn't start with the action that started here. You see what Jesus is doing? He's taking the commandment and he's drilling down into the heart. And by the way, Jesus never says the left hand or the left eye. He says the right hand and the right eye. Why is that? I'll tell you why it is. The right hand was the seat of prominence and importance and honor. Jesus is saying, don't lose your honor. I don't think I've ever seen a command where Jesus said, you're left. Although he did say, one on my right, one on my left, but that was in a different context. He's saying, this is the position of honor. Don't lose your honor. And then he follows up with the remain sexually pure and again, I apologize, should be dark, and treat marriage with reverence. Treat marriage with reverence. Now notice, he mentions here the certificate first. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Apoluo is the Greek word there, and that means to dissolve the marriage bond. The certificate apostosimo means a written statement prepared by the one giving the woman the death or the uh, 
the divorce certificate. You know what Jesus was referring to here? He was referring to the Mosaic Law. You want to see this? I felt bad for women. You guys know, guys, gals know me. I'm not a liberal, but I felt bad for women when you go back and you read the Old Testament. And that's why I think Jesus loved women the way that he did. Do you remember the woman that was caught in adultery? Jesus said, go, I forgive you. Let he that is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus knew. I, because they broke, these guys went overboard. Look at this. This is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because of some indecency, I'm going to tell you what the indecency is, and then you tell me if these guys were all over the board. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again because she has become defiled. You say, Pastor Mike, what does that word indecency mean? In the Hebrew, it's Iova. Iova. Listen to the range of which a man could look at his wife and say, be on your way. Knowing that women in that culture depended on men. And I've got to be honest with you. I've got to get rid of some anger here because when you look at the stuff that happened to these women that God really didn't want to happen but they worked around the fine print. Listen to this. Iova. It means if you look at her and she's ugly, you can write her a divorce. Repulsive. If you find your wife repulsive, you can get rid of her. She burnt my eggs. That's repulsive. This sounds like today. This sounds like today. A condition that is not proper. I'm reading you the full definitions of these words. Repugnant. Nakedness. I don't like her. Be gone. Not pleasing physically. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, because God in Genesis said, one man, one woman for life. That's my stand. When you marry, and I realize the Apostle Paul expands on this about other reasons for divorce. There's several of them, particularly when an unbeliever marries a believer and I think in that case in Corinthians, Paul's addressing those who were already married. Then one came to Christ and one was unsaved. 
that you're to remain with the unsaved person as long as they are willing. But if the unbeliever sends you away, you are no longer bound by those circumstances. Or a man who does not care for his family is worse than an infidel. There's a lot of definitions, but even in my scope, it's narrow. And there's only one research group that I really trust out of all of them, and that's the Barna group. It's, it's, it's a Christian group. And this is what Barna found. This is, uh, you can probably see there, maybe not, 2016 to 2018. This was the divorce rate. Now, looking at the statistics, all Americans, 41%. The good news is the divorce rate's down. It used to be over 50%. Now, Barna finds that 41%. Practicing Christians. And when he defines practicing Christians, it's that the husband is a Christian and the wife is a Christian. They wind up divorcing. To me, that's staggering. Non-practicing Christians. When I look at this, I go, non-practicing Christians are these people. I didn't get drilled down into it. But that's 44%. So are non-practicing Christians those who maybe accepted Christ when they were eight years old, they were baptized, and you never see them again in the church? Is that what we mean by non-practicing Christians? My understanding of New Testament salvation is different if that's the case for this. I don't know how you can be a non-practicing Christian. It could be that you're just, oh, I'm 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 a Christian. Maybe that was what the survey said. I'm a Christian. Are you going to church? No. Do you read your Bible? No. Maybe that's what they mean by it. But the other one is pretty steady. Non-Christians is 41%. The most staggering statistic to me is right here. That is only 13 points from 50. And the statistics get worse. Second, third, fourth marriages. They get worse. Another statistic which might shock you is this one by the Barna Group. Millennials, divorce rates, 19 to 20%. Yes! We just when we thought things were bad. Well, you got to look at the numbers. The Gen X, 37%. My group, the boomers. I know I'm giving away my age. 52% of boomers of all Americans are getting divorced. 48%, 48%, think about that for a moment. 48% of believers who have called upon the name of Christ are divorcing. Now that's of this survey. I'm hoping and praying that number is a lot lower. And again, I realize there's reasons for divorce. I understand that. But do you agree with me that that number's high? And we look over here, the elders, notice the number's lower. Okay, let's unpack this for a minute. First of all, the millennials, they haven't been married long enough to have the divorces. And in fact, millennials are not getting married. That's why their numbers are so low. As they begin to go in their marriage, they're going to hit the boomers. And maybe worse. 
and you look at the Gen X again the same category you haven't been as married as long as 37 years in some cases 40 in some cases 70 they haven't been married that long so yeah the numbers look good for for the Millennials but that's because the statistic is not completed and of course the elders I think it's those that are in their 70s of course spouses die and you know the numbers start going back down I think I wrote this down I got to remember it sometimes I forget stuff 1946 to 1964 I'm in the boomer group now that's higher than the chart that we just showed because that was a compilation of everything this is a narrowed focus so now the numbers are bumping up here's 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 my thought it really involves the choice I cannot tell you I, I don't do many marriages I just don't but I think we need to get back to the fact that marriage is an institution of God and whatever it is try to work it out and I get it. I'm not, I'm not getting down. I'm just saying that we need to be careful to make sure that we honor the marriage. And it's, it's really, when I look at those numbers, this is where the millennials, and then I don't know who's beyond that, it's coming up. It's going to continue to go up like this. But not all millennials are, I mean, the good thing is 19% of them are still or have have divorced only 19 percent hope that number stays down I'm not against the young kids we need the young kids folks we need them to carry on the banner of Christ so pray for them but then Jesus put some limitations on divorce notice verse 32 but I say to you everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery now this was before the Apostle Paul wrote but this here's here is the thing we need to get back to treating marriage with reverence we've lost that The day that you proposed to your wife and the wife the day you accepted your husband's proposal and you stood before the pastor and God and cited those vows I take those vows very seriously so honor the commitment that you made to your wife now there's you don't have to be divorced I mean you could have a spouse die and in that case you're free to marry again and at this point Jesus says unless adultery then you can't divorce of course then we read the apostle paul and he starts identifying not i but the lord or not the lord but i say and but same thing as the lord saying it because the apostle paul wrote it god realizes their situations and there's even sometimes and this may shock you I remember a woman in my previous churches her husband was using her as a battering ram 
He would not go to counseling. He would not get help. And I recommended that she leave him. I am not going to say, stay with your husband while he pulverizes you and is unwilling to get help. Now, God may judge me for that, but I see God as me wanting to protect the woman and keep her safe. That is not a safe environment. And I could even make a case that that was the unbeliever who violated the marriage covenant. Stuart Weber, again, Jesus, this is a good summary. Jesus hates divorce in every instance, but he permits it in an extremely narrow circumstances. His will, and I, I totally agree with this, his will is always reconciliation. Uh, his will is always reconciliation except in the face of ongoing, listen to this, ongoing, unrepentant, adulterous, destructive destruction of the marriage covenant. If your husband or wife is not going to honor the marriage commitment and they are doing stuff that is destructive, and particularly if they're an unbeliever, I see that as a violation. And that in that case, because I've married people who have been divorced, but I always ask them what caused the divorce or divorces. There's nothing wrong with that. There is grace. I want you to understand there is such a thing as grace within the kingdom of God. And I try to give as much grace as I possibly can before I realize God may be upset with me and I don't want him to be upset with me. And by the way, the church, us, we should be people of grace. We should allow enough grace. If somebody says they're sorry, we forgive them. If somebody has done something terrible and they repent, we are under obligation as believers to forgive them. So yes, I have had no problem marrying people who have been married before. But if I were to go back and start it, I would say it's the choice that matters. If the choice is flawed, every young, and if you're a young person listening today by Facebook and online, this this is what I want you to do. Look beyond, oh, he's so cute. Ask the questions. Does he follow Jesus? Does he love Jesus? Has he proven himself? Is he worthy? Is he sexually pure? Those are the questions you should be asking, not, oh, he's so cute. Oh, she's nice looking. And that's not what this is about. This is going deeper than that. And... It's a difficult subject. Maybe some of these things that I've said you don't agree with. That's okay. But I want you to know that I'm, I believe in grace, and I believe in extending that grace. But if somebody is unrepentant, and they're unwilling to change, what do you do with that? And in those cases, I say it's okay. I don't say it's okay a lot. But if somebody isn't living for Jesus and they have basically abandoned the Christian faith and they are not following him, that's a tough, that's a tough thing. 
But I'm going to tell you, divorce should be last resort. You do realize that. It should be the last resort.